HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers produce over 600 varieties, types, and styles of cheese. That's twice as much as any other state. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, it's our season four finale, and we're sharing some of our greatest kitchen joys. Maybe most people consider making it too much work or too messy, but this is the food that's worth the work and worth the wait. You always know where the thing is because you put it away the right way the first time. You just sort of stand there and, you know, with your hand on your hip and one leg outstretched, glass of wine in your hand, staring into the refrigerator going, okay, speak to me. Oh yeah, what are you doing with the celery tonight? I'm making a simple syrup for a gin cocktail with the celery. And I also found a recipe for a celery soup that's going to use up the celery and the potatoes and some of that dill that we still have hanging out in there. (laughs) Tune in and be inspired to find the joy in your kitchen. And don't forget to subscribe to Meat in 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, folks. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and it's back to school, people, so we're going to talk about school. My guest today is Jennifer Gaddis, an assistant professor in the Department of Civil Society and Community Studies in the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she is the author of The New Labor of Lunch. Sorry, The Labor of Lunch. It's a new book, I should say. The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. It is published by University of California Press, and you can pre-order it on Amazon. I noticed your pub date, Jennifer, is in November. Is that right? That's correct. November 12th, I've been told. Okay, that'll be the glorious day. Um, But people can pre-order it on Amazon now, and I strongly urge people to do it. As I said to Jennifer when I was writing the outline for the show, and yes, I do do that, people. Um, because otherwise, you know me, I would talk like uh, all over the map. Uh, we would never stay on topic because I have ADD. Adult onset, I've decided. <laughs> I don't think I was like this when I was younger. But anyway, um, yes, uh, this book was so riveting to me that I literally took a note on every page. So the the ARC, the advanced reader copy that I have is like, you can barely see that there's a book. There are so many post-it notes sticking out of every single page. It was really 
So, so interesting, Jennifer. Thank you for uh, contributing this wonderful book to the lexicon. And not enough is talked about school food, in my opinion. So let's start by having you give us a very quick overview, because there's so much else I want to ask you about. But let's let's talk a little bit about the origins of the National School Lunch Program, also known as NSLP. Go for it. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I agree that um, not nearly enough is known about the program. And most of the time when you hear people talk about the National School Lunch Program, um, there's always kind of this soundbite that it was started in 1946, right after the end of World War II, when we realized that you know children needed better nutrition and we could um, through a public program, not only provide better nutrition to children, but also an outlet for surplus farm commodities. And what a lot of right. people don't realize is that this um, national program um, actually had about a 50-year history prior to that, and a history that was very much led by women who were organizing more so at the local level and the state level to create nonprofit school lunch programs and their communities. So it was really only through their efforts that began in the 1890s um, that we have this program that we kind of now take for granted in a lot of ways. So mm. I think that that, um, that kind of longer history and really recognizing the role that um, women in particular and local communities played um, is very important for giving us some inspiration nowadays to kind of you know, reinvent the program. Well, reinvent it, we need to do, that is for sure. Um, I, one of the things that I thought really interesting in that thumbnail, uh, well, in the, in the early part of your book, is you point out, I think it was after World War One or was it World War Two? they were recruiting, maybe it was World War Two. they were recruiting for, you know, soldiers to go overseas, and so many men presented uh, themselves for the, dra- or for, the, uh, for the services who were ma- literally malnourished. Isn't that part of what catalyzed the growth of the National School Lunch Program? That was a big part of it. So this idea of what was then called defense nutrition became really popular in this sort of idea of a nation-building project um, by investing Mm -hmm. in children's nutrition um, was really popularized at that time. And that was World War I or World War II? Um, well, so that, that language, I think, really happened um, at both points. Um, but uh-huh. I think that um, it uh, sort of took off um, more in a way after World War II because um, between the two world wars was the Great Depression. And during the Great Depression, the federal government became really involved in the child nutrition world. So um, basically during the Great Depression, there were a lot of children and families that were going hungry like all over the country. And um, there were all sorts of crops that were being um, like, you know, burnt or like otherwise disposed of. And people thought it was like really strange that, you know, there were hungry people and there was food available, but it wasn't getting to these um, people who needed it. So the federal government started buying um, what they deemed um, surplus food and redistributing that. And schools became one of the beneficiaries of that. So one of the places where this um, quote unquote excess food um, would be distributed. So Uh courtesy of the federal government, we had um, not only this um, influx of free food to nonprofit school lunch programs, but also through the Works Progress Administration. They hired tons and tons of women, particularly low-income women, to staff um, food service programs. So I think that um, as a result of this federal subsidy for food and labor. Um, There was this mass expansion of where school lunch programs existed and how many um, children were actually fed by them so that by the time we get to World War II and there's this, um, once again, recognition that children's health, um, like, actually, you know, kind of follows them into adulthood and we need to invest in what children right? eat, you know, when they're younger. Um, there was uh, more of an infrastructure um, uh, kind of 
across the country to then invest in around this idea of defense nutrition. Very interesting. Now, one of the themes, what I really liked about your book, uh, among other things, was uh, that you you, or, you 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 referred to themes uh, numerous occasions, and one of the themes that I particularly um, took note of is that, that your book kind of demonstrates the history of gender, racial, urban, and class politics of the United States. Can you explain what you meant by that and why you felt that was part of this story? Yeah, so I think um, there's several kind of examples of this. So on the one hand, um, often when we talk about school lunch, um, there's a discussion surrounding um, charity and the poor, so even this language of um, free and reduced price meals and who qualifies or doesn't qualify. And I know um, on the show you've even talked about lunch shaming. Um, so all of that yes. um, kind of idea surrounding um, how poor children should be treated by the state um, is, I think, something that um, the National School Lunch Program really shows us. Um, so even um, back in the progressive of era, so the 1890s through uh, the 1920s, um, during uh, this time when school lunch programs were first starting, there were these discussions about, you know, which children should be fed and why. And um, a lot of the women who were involved in starting these school lunch programs, they had to really hustle to try to get resources, um, often um, from like different philanthropists to be able to provide meals for um very low-income children. And oftentimes, um, the women themselves um, would volunteer in school lunch programs, or um, if they were being paid, they would work for very low wages. And a lot of it was because they really wanted to make these programs possible, but their work wasn't really valued in the same kind of way. So I think that a lot of times when work... um, particularly food-related work is more associated with the work of, like, mothering and, you know, being nurturing, Um, we tend to devalue it from an economic perspective. And then in the um, kind of 1950s through 1960s, when the National School Lunch Program was first becoming, like, really, really mainstream across the U.S., um, the majority of resources um, really went to white schools in the suburbs um, because they were the ones who were, you know, just building all over the place, and a lot of the urban schools that had been invested in in um, kind of the progressive era expansion of public education um, weren't originally built with kitchens or cafeterias. So um, by the the 1950s, 1960s, it became really common um, for schools to have kitchens and cafeterias and therefore to be able to really take advantage of the financial subsidy of the National School Lunch Program. Um, But a lot of these urban schools have been sort of passed over and didn't have those same kinds of investments in infrastructure. So that made it really challenging for them to actually provide free meals to children. And the original legislation um, in 1946 that created the National School lunch program really left it very open-ended in terms of what it means to be a poor child. (laughs) So the legislation said to essentially assist the the quote-unquote needy, but there wasn't Uh really any common designation of what that was. So it was very much locally determined, um, which as I'm sure a lot of people can imagine, um, created a lot of room for um, people's racism and assumptions about class and about um, worthiness um, surrounding public assistance to creep in. Right, right, absolutely. um, Yeah, there were like just tremendous issues with so many children who really, in in theory, had a right to participate in the National School Lunch Program being passed over because the um, investment was much more funneled to um, white and suburban communities at the expense of communities of color in both um, urban and rural areas, actually. 
right? I would imagine in the South, for example, uh, if you had a school district that was primarily people of color, you would not be, you know, funneling a lot of funds to make sure that those kids had something to eat. Um, right. That, you know, that, that just seems so obvious and axiomatic. Um, one of the other things that you brought up, uh, which you just touched on now, was the value of care and mm-hmm. um, especially the lack of value assigned to the idea of care. And again, to just go back to those Southern schools for a second, a lot of the lunch, quote unquote, lunch ladies there would often be women of color taking care of children of color um, and, and providing something more than just uh, putting food on a tray. Talk a little bit about that um, sort of sense of care that is, um, I don't know if it's gone away. I don't think it has. I mean, we have the example of Philando Castile, for example, the enormously popular uh, lunch guy in um, who was murdered by the police a few years ago. Uh, but but what, what has happened to that lack of valuing of care, as it were? Talk about that. Yeah, well, I think that anyone who has fed a child knows that there's more to it than just handing them a plate of food. <laughs> like, oftentimes you're you know, you're building a relationship with them. You're getting to know them over time. Um, you're learning about their lives, their likes and their dislikes, and you're making them feel welcome and comfortable. And that's actually really important. A lot of research studies show, like, in terms of getting kids to try unfamiliar foods or things that they maybe think that they don't like. So there's always this perennial question of, like, how do you get kids to eat fruits and vegetables? And certainly um, them having, a, like, a good positive relationship with the people that are feeding them really matters. Um, but a lot of the times when you look at why workers are being hired, like job descriptions and sort of what um, what they're technically supposed to be doing, all of those forms of um, what sociologists often call emotional labor um, are really taken for granted um, when done well, both in schools and I'm sure as many parents can attest, like also when done in the home. Um, sure. But, you know, actually taking time to like smile at children and to... Um, be aware of their broader like social circumstances, especially in schools where um, cafeteria workers might be feeding like multiple siblings, or if they're there long enough, they might have even fed like a child's like uncles, aunts, or parents. Like having a, yeah. a real strong sense of connection to community is really important, but it's not really something that workers get like paid to do. And in fact, um, as school districts um, really struggle with finances, um, I would say that one of the real challenges is that. Um, the more and more that they're cutting workers' hours and substituting, like, scratch-cooked food for, like, factory-made heat-and-serve meals, the less time workers actually have to be engaging with children. And the more turnover we see in these positions, like cashiers and um, workers who are on the serving line, so people who are having kind of the most face-to-face interaction tend to be in those two positions, cashiers and working the serving line, that have the most um, actual interest interaction with children. So it's a real problem um, that we're not actually valuing the maintenance of these relationships as part of the job because, um, you know, a lot of kids, like if they don't have a positive experience going through the lunch line, even if they're hungry, um, even if they qualify for free and reduced price lunches and really depend on that as a source of nourishment, they might be scared, especially little kids, and not actually go and get their lunch. And so I think this piece about um, making sure that the workers have the conditions that they need to adequately care for kids is really important. And then I think the flip side of that is that um, we have, um, so this National School Lunch Program, um, only about 30 million American children participate in it every year now, and another 20 million are opting out. 
So 50 million kids you know, go to school every day and they have the opportunity to eat a school lunch um, through the National School Lunch Program. But most of the kids who are coming from more upper class and upper middle class families who are still in public schools and from middle class families that can afford to opt out um, – Often they do. So the kids will bring lunches from home um, or they'll purchase food from the a la carte lines, but it's different from the um, kind of federal um, meal that's um, regulated. So what ends up happening is that um, I think in particular um, parents who are really concerned about like what their children are eating and want to have like kind of more control over it instead of sending their children to school with um, some money to spend, um, they'll pack lunches. And even though, um, you know, we like to think that domestic labor is getting progressively um, degendered, it's still women who do the majority of domestic work in the home. So I think that um, we have to also recognize that when um, like families don't really think that the National School Lunch Program is providing like a good enough um, value or service for their children, and when they're opting out, that shifts like the labor that would be sort of done in schools back on to women, many of whom have jobs yes. outside of the home environment as well, and it's like yet another thing to balance. Yes, I can tell you. So from- another form of unpaid <laughs> care work. As a single parent, <laughs> yeah. I did that. <laughs> Yeah. Because my daughter would literally, literally, as a small child, she wept at the idea of having to eat school lunch. And I, I was, ne- you know, I always assumed it was because it looked and smelled so unappetizing. I don't know whether it was also a source of some kind of social stigma that she wasn't telling me about. But there is that as well, isn't there? Like the there kids is. who do have to, who do qualify for free or reduced price lunch. I, there is a social stigma attached to that. Am I right? I think that that's very true, and I think that um, over time, a lot of school food service professionals have tried to do what they can, um, although they're somewhat limited, um, to try to make that stigma less apparent. But oftentimes, cafeterias really still are like very much coded in terms of um, class and sometimes in terms of race as well, um, based on what children are eating. And I actually like so I started doing some research for a second book project that's more on like international comparisons of school lunch programs, and I was doing field work Ooh, yeah. in Japan this summer. And in Japan, <laughs> Good for it was you. really interesting. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I was really interested actually in going to countries where um, like scratch cooking is normal and is like what everyone does versus like you're sort of treated as exceptional for managing to do it. Um, but in Japan, what was really interesting is that. They have a universal school lunch program, so it's not universal yes. free. Um, like more affluent parents still pay, but all children are required to participate. And I did um, some focus groups with moms there, and one of the things they said really struck me. So they talked about how much they appreciate their school lunch program because they think it serves really high-quality food, and um, the school cooks are able to invest more time in um, – basically making like traditional Japanese dishes that are more complex, require different ingredients or kind of more um, time consuming to prepare. So they really appreciate knowing that at school, the kids are getting all this exposure to different kinds of food. So it helps like with pickiness and things like that. Um, And it also helps with, you know, just the range of, um, things that the kids are consuming so they're having like good nutrition um but it makes it easier for them when they come home after the end of a long work day to feel like they can make something like a little bit more simple for their families and still feel like they're being good parents 
So I thought that, that was really interesting because that's not at all how parents like tend to talk about like our school lunch program in the US. Oh, no kidding. Well, I, re- I don't know if you saw this. Again, I'm going to digress here for a second. But did you see Michael Moore's movie, um, Where Do We Conquer Next or Where to I Invade did. Next? Yes. Did you see that? Okay, so remember, he had a whole segment on school lunch and he mm-hmm. chose France uh, as a place to, you know, where he took his camera crew into the school cafeteria and you see these kids are eating you know, something that I would be proud to serve myself, you know. (laughs) And, and I think that although that is not, I actually had a French person staying here this weekend. And I asked her about that because she had gone through the school system there. And she said, people do pay. Um, So it's, I think it's a very similar model to the Japanese. um, But again, it was required participation. You had to eat school lunch. You didn't bring your own lunch. That just didn't happen. So anyway, mm-hmm. interesting, interesting. But let's let's move on because we're already like running out of time and I have barely gotten through the first five questions here. So now I want to go back to something that really struck me is that when you were talking in this history of the school lunch program, by the 1920s and 30s, there was the same kind of dynamic in play around the profit versus nonprofit model of the National School Lunch Program as we see today, meaning that there was better food in the nonprofit model, worse food when they outsourced the making of the food uh, to a corporation. Uh, that food was worse when it was a for-profit model. So describe how that has sort of evolved in the subsequent decades, and um, and then it will kind of bring us to the next thing about how big food is, you know, made of... <laughs> Sure. has reared its ugly so, head. So go ahead. One of, Sorry. One of the big um, things that a lot of the women who were really involved in the early school lunch programs um, were able to actually achieve in terms of, like, when the National School Lunch Program was created in 1946, um, a lot of the kind of giveaways within that legislation were to more of the kind of big ag interests. Um, But these women, one of the things that they were able to secure is that the National School Lunch Program would operate as a not-for-profit school lunch program. And partly they relied on this evidence that um, when schools were contracting um, their services with private um, vendors, that the food quality was lower and that those um, for-profit vendors um, really wouldn't be as invested in maintaining food quality or doing um, nutrition education, those kinds of things. But um, they were able to secure, um, you know, this legislation that said, okay, well, schools cannot actually contract out their lunch services. Um, And that was how it was through the 1950s and 1960s. So it wasn't until there was this real crisis um, in the mid-1960s to late 1960s when there was this realization that so many children, like millions and millions of children, particularly black children, were being systematically excluded from the National School Lunch Program in urban areas, that there was this policy reversal that allowed for-profit management companies to come into school lunch programs. So these for-profit companies, um, um, many of whom like you know, were represented by uh, the National Restaurant Association and a kind of other lobbying organizations, and we're very yeah. active in trying to push Congress to change this legislation because they saw school lunch as a growing market segment, um, particularly as like more and more baby boomers were entering schools. They thought, okay, you know, this is a, a huge number of people. It's kind of a captive audience. Like it's a great place to sort of train people to ex- accept and actively crave particular kinds of food. So Ooh. they were really aggressive and sort of saying, um, We have expertise in doing what's called volume feeding, Um, so feeding really large numbers of people at once, 
And they also um, sort of played on their expertise with the airline industry saying, you know, okay, you don't have kitchens in these urban schools where you like aren't really, um, you know, offering school lunch right now. Well, that's no problem because we know how to feed lots and lots of people in a tiny space with minimal amounts of equipment. All you need right. to do is put in like a convection oven that you can wheel all these little TV dinners into and suddenly you can have a lunch program. So they were able to really convince um, Congress that um, kind of opening the doors to private management companies and to partnerships with um, different manufacturers was really the way to go in resolving this crisis of how do we kind of rapidly expand the National School Lunch Program to actually include all of these poor children who have been excluded for like several decades. Wow, wow. So um, let's, I mean, so that was, it resulted in really a bonanza, a financial bonanza for uh, large food uh, industry um, players. Isn't that right? I yeah. mean, I don't want to dwell too long on that because I, I was hoping to get something in about the Black Panthers because they really were part of the catalyst behind changing government investment in the school lunch program. But um, I really, I really want to move on because I want it, I want to have you connect the dots between food justice for poor kids the low-wage workers, which is what lunch ladies are, um, and never more so than now, because uh, I think, as you said earlier, like sometimes it's, or maybe you didn't, but it's sometimes your job as a school lunch person is only one or two or three hours a day. It's not like yeah. you're, because you're not working from scratch. You're not making, you're not doing scratch cooking. So so you, you I want you to connect the dots between food justice for poor kids, low-wage workers, and the health of the environment, and then, you know, somehow <laughs> connect that to the culture of cheapness that prevails yeah. in the NSLP, because that's the thing I just can't get over is the culture of cheapness. And I want to talk about that for a minute, too. But but try to make that sort of connection for everybody. Okay. So I think one of the easiest ways to think about it when we first start thinking about children is thinking about how as um, more and more food started to be manufactured in factories and to move through like very, very industrial, um, industrially intensive supply chains. Um, more and more chemicals, um, you know, made their ways into children's children's bodies. So if we think about like a chicken nugget, for instance, um, a chicken nugget could just be um, a piece of like whole muscle meat taken directly from you know the bird and breaded in a very simple. Um, like coating, um, or it could be chock full of lots of different industrial fillers and preservatives. Um, a lot of the chicken nuggets of my youth were definitely that uh, second part where there were a lot of chemicals um, in the chicken nuggets. And I think that um, we have to kind of look at industrial foods in this way of looking not only at the kind of additives that are added at the point of processing, but also, for instance, like the antibiotics um, that are used like um, when the birds are being raised or in the case of produce, like pesticides, um, fungicides, things like that are being applied. And all of those kinds of chemicals, whether they're intentionally or not intentionally added um, into foods, um, they eventually you know, make their way into children's bodies and some accumulate more than others, but they contribute to what um, people within the public health field um, or environmental toxicology call a body burden. So that's kind of the total amount of chemicals um, in someone's body. So um, we can sort of imagine that um, the lower kind of quality food that you're consuming, so the, the cheaper it's been made through substituting like human labor for chemicals, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the more um, the more chemicals you have in your body. And a lot of the studies um, that people do looking at chemical um, 
effects um, on bodies, um, you know, it's really complex. So it's really hard to say, like, you know, what the effects of even like one or two things in combination are doing, let alone like, you know, when we're consuming so many different kinds of chemicals in different quantities. So a lot of the people who are concerned about really making school lunch better, who are part of this like real food movement, this movement to bring um, less processed food and more kind of farm to school, locally sourced food into schools. Um, I would say that, um, you know, they're on the right track um, sort of moving away from this industrial model. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, I think, um, get frustrated that it seems like schools um, aren't moving like faster in that direction. And that's kind of where it goes back to the fact that um, I mentioned earlier that 30 million kids participate in the National School Lunch Program and 20 million don't. Well, those 20 million who don't, like when their parents get frustrated, it's a lot easier for them to sort of say, okay, well, I'm just going to buy better quality food for my own child and send that to them or send that with them to school. Whereas people who like really are more dependent on the financial subsidy of the National School Lunch Program because their own wages um, might be very, very low, they sort of have um, a little less control, right, over um, you know what it is their children might actually be consuming. So I think um, part of the food justice component is making sure that all kids have access to really high-quality food that's going to be healthy for their bodies and to an environment um, in which they're consuming consuming it that makes them feel good and that makes them feel valued instead of making them feel stigmatized for something that's like really outside of their control in the first place. Yes, right. Absolutely. Since the mid-1800s, before Wisconsin was even recognized as a state, its resident cheesemakers have been putting the art into artisan cheese. When early settlers from Switzerland, Germany, and Italy came to Wisconsin, they brought their cheesemaking expertise with them. They chose Wisconsin because the terroir reminded them of the homes they'd left behind in Northern Europe. The soil and water of Wisconsin is nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin's cheesemakers draw from their rich European heritage and cheesemaking traditions, and combine them with incredible innovation to produce half of the nation's specialty cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers never stop experimenting, trying to improve, and dreaming of your next favorite cheese that has yet to be imagined. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. So that brings us to the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. Why don't you describe the impact of that? And then let's talk about why that has been such a tough sell. Like, Ever since Michelle Obama tried to, you know, introduce that legislation and managed to somehow get it passed, and there has been nothing but pushback since. So, what what was the healthy? You describe exactly what that was, and um, and what has happened since then. Sure. So for those who aren't aware of this, a uh, school lunch, um, it typically uh, consists of five components. So it, mm-hmm. it's fruit, vegetable, grain, milk, and um, protein. And yeah. for a very long time, most schools used a policy called offer, offer versus serve that meant that a school would have to offer all five of those components, but they would only serve um, three of those components to a child, and it could be any three, and it would be counted as like a federally reimbursable, like nutritious school lunch. So one of the big changes of the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act is it said 
um, all of a sudden that one of those three components had to be either a fruit or a vegetable. So like when I was a kid and ate school lunch, um, I could take, for instance, um, a piece of pizza and a chocolate milk, and that would be considered a federally reimbursable nutritious school lunch because I would have my grain and my dairy and my protein. I wouldn't have to take a fruit or a vegetable. So the big change was that suddenly uh, that would not fly anymore. <laughs> like one of those components would have to be like a salad or an apple or something like that. The other piece was that it changed um, the legislation to where schools had to serve a much higher percentage of whole grains versus refined grains, although right. that has been um, loosened recently under the Trump administration. And I think um, the other thing the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act did was to try to create more of an emphasis on a culture of health in schools. So not just surrounding the food, but also physical activity and a link to school gardens. And the last thing that it did was um, it introduced new professional requirements for food service staff. So just like teachers have a certain amount of professional development credits um, they have to do in order to kind of maintain their licensing, um, now people who work in school food service departments have kind of similar requirements. Um, and huh, the other thing I didn't I would know say that. that it, hmm. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I would say um, it did um, isn't really such a – a part of the legislation, but I think it's something that kind of happened at the same time. So um, there was this real, I think, trend, and I saw this a lot when I would go to different school food shows where manufacturers would bring different products and sort of show them to the people who are making purchasing decisions for school lunch programs, um, that um, there was this real push toward what the industry calls clean label food, so food that doesn't yes. have um, like artificial ingredients and colors and things like that in it. And I think that um, while the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act didn't mandate that, I think it um, kind of coincided with this broader cultural shift to um, a different kind of processed food being served in um, school lunches. Yes, I agree. It's like greenwashing basically, right? Yeah, I mean... It's the I, same I think, idea, in I a think way. That's, that's fair, yeah. I think that, on the one hand, we could say, well, even if it's, like, still um, produced under the same kind of conditions that exploit, like, workers and the environment, um, it is good <laughs> that you know, children are getting fewer chemicals in their bodies, but is that really where we want to stop? I would say right. no. Well, what I, I find absolutely incomprehensible about this whole thing uh, really, from the very, you know, from from the beginning of, of for-profit versus non-profit, is, is the idea that the children, that our future, does not deserve the very highest quality of food. This is what I find. I just don't get why people don't want to vote for that kind of money. You know, like why congressional leaders, uh, why state and federal uh, legislators are not going the extra mile to, you know, make that something that is just uh, mandated for every child in this country, that the best quality food that can be, you know, produced for a reasonable amount of money is not allocated to these children. I don't get it. I just don't get it. It's yeah, like I think um, a, lot, a lot of these conversations sort of miss the fact that the way the food is prepared and served really matters. So there's been a yeah. really long, long emphasis on just scientific nutrition and on kind of regulating what the fat and calories and um like nutrient profile Sodium. right 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 like yeah without really recognizing that there's a lot more to this discussion of what quality looks like that really matters if we're thinking about making sure that 
children are not only eating their school lunches, but that we're also accomplishing other kinds of objectives, like providing good quality jobs for people across the food chain and directing more of our public dollars to the kinds of agriculture and food companies that actually make for stronger communities. So I think that there's a lot of missed opportunities. um, And I think that part of it has to do with um, so many politicians um, really, you know, being more beholden to big food companies than to sustainable, like, agricultural producers. And I think another component of it is um, those 20 million children that I mentioned earlier uh, who are mostly coming from middle and upper middle class families. Um, I think that the more um, that sort of chunk of the population is opting out of this program, the more it makes it harder um, to hold politicians accountable to making this a really high-quality program, and the more difficult it is to build the political will to actually fight for major changes. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's exactly right, which is why I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up after this. But um, but what, uh, you know, like basically I thought that your book really made a great argument for universal lunch, meaning mm-hmm. universal free lunch, I mean. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering what kinds of uh, strategies – uh, would or what what would convince uh, the 20 million who aren't availing themselves of a reimbursable? In other words, without all of these people opting in, you don't have the economies of scale to allocate more funds towards each plate, right? And then so therefore, then it's got to be cheaper and cheaper food because you don't really have enough money uh, in the coffers to make this uh, something that will work uh, better quality for everybody, including the labor. So what what is what what do we have to do now? What do we have to do now, Jennifer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what's, I think what's that's the a real prescription, doctor? <laughs> and if we, I mean, it, it's like it, it's it's definitely like a, a complicated um, issue. But I think if we look to the history of school lunch, when we've seen major major changes happen, not just kind of incrementalist reforms, it's been when really large numbers of people across the country have gotten riled up and organized for change. And I think that um, certainly we need to build a movement around this issue. But I think also in the short term, there's a lot of really great work that some school districts are doing in showing like what's possible currently. And I think one of the things we need to recognize is that um, some of these school districts, when they switch over to a scratch cooking model and do more with farm to school and um, really treat school lunch more like an educational opportunity, um, they're able to attract more people from, um, you know, the the what what are called paid lunches, so um, children who don't qualify for free or reduced price meals. So it's like we know that there's something going on with oh, you know, when we improve the quality, people want to participate. So I think that um, you know part of the conversation is getting a lot of these families of these 20 million children to recognize that they are actually missing out on a subsidy. So all school lunches are subsidized. It's just the extent to which they're subsidized is different for people who would qualify for like the full price versus um, reduced price or free lunches. So I think a lot of, yeah, a lot of these parents and particularly moms who are spending time every day packing lunches for their kids, I want to get them interested in this conversation of figuring out how do we bring our collective energies to this project of making school lunch better for everyone instead of investing all of our individual energy on repeat every morning, you know, packing lunches like for our own children. So I think that it's it's this piece of really reaching out to the people who currently don't 
benefit at all from the program and helping them understand like what their own interests are um, in terms of their own households. Um, and again, like for those, I guess, who are more motivated by social justice concerns to help them also understand how their opting out of this program impacts children who are less fortunate. Um, to me, those are kind of two parts of the puzzle that we can't really have meaningful reform as long as we have this really like classed system of school lunch. Yes, I agree. I think that's so. Those are great points, absolutely. And and as you say, I want to I want to just repeat that there are. I mean, you outline in the book beautifully. I mean, there's the Chef Ann Foundation, and then there are lots and lots of districts all across the country who, over the past ten years, uh, have made heroic efforts to you know start school gardens and make that part of the curriculum. And and it certainly is a movement that is happening. But I. You know, it is. It's also very clear if 20 million kids are not opting into a federally subsidized program that somehow the the message is getting lost along the way, and uh, you know, definitely more people can be, uh, you know, participating in this uh, rather than opting out. I certainly wish that I hadn't opted out, but I really have a choice. I mean, my kid was yeah, like, no, and I, I mommy. Think, I think so many people feel that way, and I, I think that that's yeah. where it kind of goes back to. Um, really revaluing the workers and the role they play in this and also yeah. creating space for the kids um, to have a say in what school lunches look like. And that's why I'm such a strong advocate for like a worker-centered approach to reforming school lunch programs that recognizes the kind of whole value that they can bring to school lunch programs as not only people with culinary skill, but people who are really there to care for kids. And right. you know, once, once we have that ability to be cooking with basic ingredients, it opens up a lot more possibilities for children and families to play a role in figuring out, okay, well, you know, certainly we have nutritional parameters and we might have other values that we want to see expressed through our school lunch program, but how do we negotiate that together? Like, how do we build school lunch programs that at the local level really look like we want them to look? And I think that, you know, we can't get to a point where we have those kinds of, of school lunch programs um, that really work for the majority of people until we get away from this model of just serving industrial food and school lunch programs that's just taken out of boxes and reheated and served to kids without um, a lot more attention to the social justice concerns um, that yes. I think are kind of hidden um, by that model. Well, well said. Um, so now you get to promote yourself shamelessly. Uh, <laughs> once again, let me just say once again, the name of the book is The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools, um, coming out in November, but available on pre-order at Amazon. Now, do you have events? Do you have a website? Do you have all of those all important have a things? The website is jenniferelanegaddis.com. And I'm doing um, some like book festival stuff. I just published an op-ed in The Guardian actually on Sunday. Uh, so people oh, want to check that out. Um, it's, it's there. And um, if you do go to my website, um, I have um, some materials there. Um, I'm still kind of in the process of making some of them, but there's some like short videos um, that kind of take people behind the scenes of the book and that really feature the voices of a lot of the workers that I interviewed, um, kind of telling the story in their own words. So people are welcome to check those out. And eventually, um, I'm really hoping that this will be something that um, people find accessible and um, helpful in thinking about 
what school lunch could look like um, within their own communities and at the national scale. So to that effect, um, one of the things that I'm working on is like a reading guide. So if people want to have like reading clubs, um, I have, uh, I've done it for about three chapters. I need to finish the rest of the book, but it's basically like a a few questions um, to kind of structure, like if you want to have a reading group and then it has some organizing activities, which are basically just my suggestions for what I've seen work well when communities are trying to organize to make change in their own local school district. That's so great. Well, thank you so much. JenniferElaineGaddis.com is the website. Go there and do your homework, people. (laughs) It's a new school year. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jennifer. Great book, great conversation. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Katie. It was a pleasure. And thanks to my sponsor. And thanks for listening, folks. See you next week. Bye-bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.